Hey, this is Shared Instance. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Robinson. And today we're one man down. This is episode 115. And uh, if you check our Twitter account, we may have a reason why Argo is not with us this this week. He's on vacation. I think this dude's on his like tenth vacation this, this summer already. And definitely in the double digits by now. <laughs> That's the app life. So yeah, it's well. Uh, last week we didn't actually have an episode because I went down to Texas to visit in-laws and forgot to pack my microphone. Which is okay anyway, because the internet ended up being out for a while. And that was that was a fun time trying to work from home without an internet connection. But I did learn how to how to uh, tether my phone and my laptop and use the data cellular data connection there and work around the VPN software that doesn't seem to like it when you do that kind of thing. So good stuff. I also ended up working from a library for a little while. Not bad. All in all, it was a good trip. What have you been up to, Alex? Uh, just uh, work. <laughs> Lots of work. Keeping busy. Keeping busy. Um, starting to busy. look at migrating an app to Swift 4 and using that as an opportunity to do some architectural improvements. So how big is the difference between 3 and 4? I didn't get the impression that it was a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, you you can pretty much move to Swift 4 without making any changes or very few changes, but uh, there are definitely some new things in Swift 4 that will allow me to delete a whole bunch of code. And I've got this old dependency that I've been wanting to get rid of and kind of gives me an excuse to to get rid of it. So I'm looking at replacing an old object mapper with uh, the new Swift codable. And oh, yeah. In the process, I'm going to turn my entire model layer in, into Swift. It's about probably about 3070 right now, or 4060 Swift versus Objective-C. So I'm hoping to migrate it all over to Swift. So a question for you. You're taking something that's an Objective-C model right now and using NS coding or something else? It's something else. It's, uh, uh, you know, we've got RustKit in there left over from, you know, a seven-year-old architecture. And at the time, RustKit was fairly popular, and now it's the... Hasn't been as well maintained. The uh, you know it's still stuck on Alamo Fire. I want to say like one point five, somewhere in that range. So it's still on the old network stack. So theoretically, I should get better performance just by getting it on a new network stack. You might not even be able to pass a security audit with Alamo Fire one point five. Um, I think. I think this is the version that's been patched in terms of like known vulnerabilities, but it certainly doesn't take advantage of any of the new stuff. I I think it could probably still support 
a current version of TLS, but I, I'm not positive about that. Um, but I, I think that's at the layer below NSURL session where where that support is. So I, I don't think it's a security issue as much as it is a performance issue, but I am definitely looking forward to being on a more current stack that is supporting the latest standards and um, is known to have better performance and generally cleaner code. Yeah, so this, this Swift coding, this thing works with all versions of iOS, right? It's not just a iOS 11 thing. They didn't call that specifically out in the talk, but in the past, any new language features were backwards compatible to anything that ran Swift. So I'm optimistic that I can go back to iOS 9. I just dropped support for iOS 8, so I'm pretty happy about that, too. So that's another big improvement. <laughs> break out the champagne right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, all of my layout code, the projects, you know, the tech lead, Back in the day, decided they didn't want to use nibs or storyboards. You know, storyboards didn't even exist at that time. So, very large project. All the all the layout code is hand coded. We started moving things over the auto layout uh, when auto layout came out for iOS. But it's uh, you know we didn't have stack views until nine, and the anchor layouts uh, constraints aren't there so i've got a lot of layout code i can clean up as well yeah the the anchor tag the anchor well i, I always want to say anchor tags anchor layout guide but, yeah those, those anchors they really do simplify your auto layout code uh, the, the project i'm on the company i'm contracting at they don't use any storyboards it's pretty much just a, a no and so everything is done in code yeah we have these view controllers that launch, you know, they have these huge methods inside of them that create a whole bunch of views. And sometimes they, they do it in a knit, sometimes they do it in load view where it really should be done. It's kind of across the board. They have their Objective C code base has some really old, clunky uh, layout code helpers. And their Swift code that they've been moving to, which is what I'm working on right now. Or project that's doing Swift right now, they don't have all those libraries ported, so it's pretty much just raw auto layout code. I don't even think we use the the VFL stuff, the Visual Format Language, that much. Yeah, I'm kind of on the fence about whether or not I I do use that a lot currently, but with the anchor guides, I'm not sure I would use it as much. I mean, and there's. In terms of wrappers, there's some good ones out there, but for the most part, the main things that I would be doing with with a wrapper is like center in view, or constraint in view, or align edge, like bottom edge to top edge with, uh, with a spacing, and yeah, the, some of that's even handled for you if you're doing stack views. So yeah. So, are you using stack views that much? Or I guess you haven't. And not. I introduced. A stack view using one of the third-party open source ports, of, yeah. and it's okay. Uh, I do all my layout and code, so I didn't have to deal with any of the the interface builder uh, support. So I don't know how well it worked 
would work with Interface Builder, but it worked okay. I, you know, the API is pretty much identical, so I only have to change one line of code to switch it over. The ones I worked with, I pretty much found them to just be bugged. And there are some certain things that are in stack views uh, that you can't do in iOS 8 because it's a new iOS 9 feature. Uh, something like the baselining, how you can align your different views based on different baselines, different things like that that you definitely just couldn't do. But for the most part, you know, I, I didn't find stack views to be all that efficient. They, it's really easy to get into a, a long layout cycle just by nesting of a few deep. Yeah, yeah. I've heard some people say they pretty much start with a stack view and only like do something else when stack views don't work. I don't know if that's a good strategy or not, but I, you know, my hesitation with that is exactly what you said, like just past experience with other solutions. Like when you start nesting things like that, it gets complicated. And I know stack views add some computational overhead. Well, they're they're basically auto layout wrappers. Yeah. So that they add enough constraints to your code to mimic a stack. Yeah. So if you've got a table view cell that has like three levels deep of a stack view, and as you're scrolling, it's got to do all of those calculations. Yeah. It gets it. You could definitely see some uh, some issues if you're if you're doing that calculation, that rendering in on the screen as opposed to off screen. It's really easy too to get three levels deep in a stack view because say you've got an image to the left, so that's you have a uh, horizontally I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a horizontally stacked stack view. So you have your image on the left and you have some text to the right and then that text is in a vertical stack view. And then maybe one of those lines in that stack in that stack view has some things that you want to stack horizontally, boom, there you are, three yeah. levels deep. And I just haven't been a big stack view fan. I, I thought they were really cool when they first came out, and I was really excited about using them. And it's not been one of those things that has lived up to the hype, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, with, it, it's one of those things that you just have to take in moderation, like don't try and use stack views to... to <laughs> don't stack view the world. Yeah. It's almost like doing nesting a whole bunch of table views and uh, or uh, table <laughs> tags in HTML or something. So a couple of things of note this past week. Uh, one, we got the new beta three, and that's not that remarkable, right? Pretty much every two weeks this is coming out, but they are actually still adding new features. And yeah, one that. <laughs> it basically got a line item in the release notes, and I don't think there's any real documentation out for it yet. But this kind of got a lot of people in the, the Twitterverse excited. But it was a addition to the Safari View Controller called SF Authentication Session. And this is using the Safari View Controller to basically do standard web auth kind of stuff. So like, you know, how you open up an app and it'll say, would you like to sign in with Facebook or these other providers like Google or maybe GitHub or something? And those all launch a usually 
they will launch either a web view inside of a, a modal or something. And those ones you should probably steer clear of because they need to really update their code base. But there's also the, uh, the Safari view controller and they'll launch that and do an OAuth dance. But you have to write a lot of code around that to get that to work. And this, this new API here looks to be doing a lot of that for you. Yeah, and it looks relatively straightforward and there's not a whole lot to it. Uh, you basically just create a SF authentication session. You have your callback URL scheme and, and a closure to handle the callback. Um, yeah, it's having written my own a couple of times. Yeah, this is definitely a lot simpler. Yeah, the the part that I'm really concerned about with this is that one, there is really no single standard library that server applications use to implement OAuth. Yeah, in the Java world, there's probably I don't know, maybe a half a dozen different libraries that would do this kind of thing from the server side, and a lot of these companies, they roll their own. And so they'll put different things in headers or they'll put something that should be in a header into part of the body of a JSON post or a uh, JSON response. And so I'm just wondering how this uh, Safari view thing is going to... Sorry. I'm just wondering how this SF authentication session thing is going to deal with all these little idiosyncratic OAuth implementations. And maybe day one, this thing comes out and it supports two or three that actually do the OAuth spec properly. And everybody else, you have to update your code. I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how it works in the real world. I suspect a lot of the standard ones, you know, the big the big OAuth providers uh, people use for single sign-on probably are pretty straightforward, uh, but I'm sure you know, especially like corporate ones, they could get a little bit more interesting. I've done something similar with a credit card company, and that one was definitely a bit unique, but obviously they've got slightly different requirements. All right, and. Another thing I didn't see was how to add different like scopes to your request. So say for instance in in the GitHub API, you can request things like access to see things in the user's uh timeline or access to see what issues a particular user has uh commented on or, or had any activity with different things like that is different capabilities inside of a website and those are usually represented as, as scopes and i didn't quite see any particular call out or way to do that in any of the articles i read yeah but you know like you said the documentation's not out yet and um it, it i think the cool thing is that they're still iterating during this beta and maybe it's scary too you know i'm sure you saw some of the 
some of the rumors talking about delays with the iPhone 8 and software not working with the uh, wireless charger in, I think the Touch ID was the other area. Or maybe it's not Touch ID, but the... Well, the, the Touch the, ID behind the glass or... The face recognition, whatever yeah, they're going to the, be doing. The front-facing 3D camera that's supposedly going to replace the Touch ID. I think at this point, I really don't give those rumors any kind of credence. You know, I like to read Mac rumors and see the different articles, but most of these ones where it's like, well, Apple is rumored to be having some kind of production issue. I, I don't read the body of those anymore. I just yeah. get tired of them. The great thing is that maybe people panic and <laughs> you know, maybe <laughs> maybe it's for the people who are want to bring the price down so they can <laughs> they can buy more Apple stock. I don't know. <laughs> it's almost clickbaity. Oh, ways. certainly, yeah. But, you know, some of the things that inductive charging isn't really a new concept, so I don't no. I don't really see that as something that they can't can't solve. The touch ID through the glass is definitely you know, as far as I know, nobody's ha nobody has a production version of that. I'm sure Apple's not the only one working on it. Uh the uh and at this point, it's really even just a rumor that that's how it's going to look. Yeah. Or that that's what they're trying to work on. And if they're using, like, face recognition to unlock the, the phone, there's other companies that are doing that already. So that's another oh, yeah. one that's not really a new concept. Um, so. yeah, I just I just hope that Apple's instance uh, is a little harder to defeat than, say, like, a printer with a contact lens. Right. Right. It's... Uh, that's yeah that's the, the the new Samsung phone. Yeah, somebody can take a picture of the eye and then print that out and put a contact lens over it, and it'll recognize that as the person. Yeah, there was an article a couple months ago that claimed a security agency uh, was able to create synthetic fingerprints that could unlock two thirds of the phones out there. Um, you know, I read something about that where if you just got a fingerprint and then you would scan it in and then if you reverse the image and we're probably violating some kind of law about talking about hacking or something but i saw this thing basically where they did that they reversed the image so that well they made it a, a monochrome image of black and white and then reversed it and then printed it out with like a very heavy toner setting of the uh the, the thumbprint and there was a couple other steps but basically that was it that's all it needed to recognize the fingerprint it was a really heavy laser print and there's a few articles out there that talk about it um i'm not most of them are Kind of those clickbait sources, so yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's academic scenarios and then real scenarios, but yeah. One thing that is interesting to me, and this is really uh, pertains to U.S. law, but we have in the U.S. we have the the Fourth Amendment, 
to the Constitution, which is the, the one that talks about illegal search and seizure. And then there's also the Fifth Amendment, which is the one that uh, keeps, gives you the right to not incriminate yourself. You can, a judge can compel you to use your thumbprint to unlock your phone because that's just biometric data. And he is not allowed to compel you to give your passcode out to unlock your phone because that falls under, I believe, Fifth Amendment. And the right so, to remain silent, basically. Yeah. So it, it's just some really funny laws. You would think that a passcode and a thumbprint, they have the same function, but they don't have the same kinds of rights. We're getting a little bit off topic here. Yeah. Yeah. I find it one password has a feature now that you can basically put it in travel mode and it'll remove any highly sensitive passwords <laughs> uh, from the foot device. At least uh, this is how I understand it works. You can have certain passwords not on the phone. So when you're traveling and somebody it compels you to unlock your phone. Um, those passwords aren't available to them. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And sad. Yeah, it's definitely a, a different world. So kind of getting back on topic, um, not quite related, but uh, one of the new APIs in iOS 11 is Core NFC. Have you had a chance to look at that yet? I... No, I haven't that that much. Like, because I don't have a phone that would work with it. Because it's currently, even though Touch ID has been in the phone since not Touch ID, but uh, the payment chip, the Apple Pay, has been in phones since the iPhone six. You have to have an iPhone seven to actually play with the core NFC stuff. Yeah, I. And I'm not sure about the watch. Um, I would think the watch would work as well because it has an, an NFC chip in it, I believe. Um, I think it would have to in order to do Apple Pay. Uh, but they, does, didn't, yeah. they didn't call that out. Like The documentation specifically says iPhone 7 and iPhone 7 Plus. So I'm not sure you can do anything with the watch at this point. In fact, you probably can't. So like it's... In this current form and the talk from WWDC, it's I think it's like 18 minutes long. Uh, you know, it's not a full talk. Just kind of go through the slides really quick. But um, you know, the way it's phrased, it sounds like this is like like the early version, and we'll see more capabilities later with the NFC chip. But for now, we can't write to a tag. We can only read data from a tag. And app that does NFC has to have an, an entitlement for that. And yeah. it has to be in the foreground, and you have to start a capture session in order to listen for the, the NFC reading. So it's not quite as flexible as I would like. You know, the utility of it's narrowed down quite a bit. Right. Yeah, you were talking in the pre-show that your son took an Android phone. And basically made a very expensive light switch. Yeah, yeah. So he was excited about Core NFC as well, and he wants to build an app with it. But 
you know, the ideal state is that you don't have to open up the app. You just tap your phone and you could trigger some sort of event, um, which you can do with an Android phone, but you can't do that with the iPhone yet. You know, maybe in, maybe in iOS 12, we'll see that, <laughs> but it sounds like in 11, you know, you might be able to do like a force touch shortcut to start a capture session from the home screen, but it's uh, not as convenient. Like if you want to use it for home automation or, or even like, you know, in a, you know, talk about like tapping on a, a box at the store with an NFC chip and getting nutrition information or allergens or whatever, you know, those use cases aren't quite as practical because you would have had to open up the app and triggered something to start the, the session. Well, even on an Android phone, I think you would have to have something running that would basically read the data from the NFC chip because you can't store a whole lot of bytes in, in an NFC tag. Right, so right. I don't even think you could store a full URL. Oh, you can. You can definitely store it. Well, it probably depends on how long the URL is, but you can definitely put a URL in it. Yeah, yeah I don't know off the top of my head. You know, we we looked at NFC like a decade or so ago in the retail space, and there were multiple issues with it at the time. Uh, the cost was too high. Like, it needed to be like a penny a tag before it was economical to put tags on every single item. And then right. ran into reliability issues because NFC tags don't work really well through liquids so whether it's a human body or a uh, bottle detergent uh, it wasn't really all that reliable like if you remember like there used to be these uh at&t and ibm commercials like the the future of technology and they'd show you like take the shopping cart and just uh, go through the checkout and never take anything out like, you know, they were talking about using NFC for that, and that's just, you would miss a lot of items if, uh, in that scenario, if it was a full cart. So, so we kind of tabled NFC for most applications, at least at the item level. Um, yeah, I, I think it came down to, like, you would have had to have done something more at the palette level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of cost effective. Yeah, great for warehouses and um, business process automation, things like that. Uh, I think it, you know, on, in a consumer space, home automation can be a neat thing. You know, I, I was jealous of the Android developers several years ago where they could basically, it used to be with Android, you would switch between your Wi Fi and your cell radio, depending on how you're using your device. You know, if you were at home, you'd be on Wi-Fi, but you'd turn the Wi-Fi radio off. And I remember them talking about, like, just tapping an NFC chip to toggle oh, the radios yeah. rather than going in deep into the settings to do it. So, or a friend of mine has his uh, contact information, I think, is like a, a, not an iCal, uh, VCS format stored in an NFC chip. Yeah. And we've got, um, we've got our Wi-Fi settings, so you just have to tap your phone to add the access point. You don't have, we 
you don't have to type in the long password. My son set that up <laughs> for our Wi-Fi <laughs> at home. So, so that kind of begs the point, though. If you remember the, uh, I think it was in the WWDC keynote where they showed, or maybe it was in one of the uh, the different State of the Union or one of the videos where they talked about their computer vision. And one of the examples they showed in a video was uh, the phone scanning the back of a Wi-Fi router and being able to pick up all the information it needed from that. And so kind of wonder if maybe NFC, well, it's definitely not, maybe, I don't know, it's hard. I'm struggling to put words to this, but maybe computer computer vision is going to supplant NFC. Certainly could. I mean, really, most of the use cases that I mentioned with NFC, you could do with a QR code and a right. URL scheme. It'd actually be easier <laughs> for most things. Yeah. Um, payments, though, is kind of an interesting thing. And I believe some Bluetooth devices with Android will use the NFC radi uh, reader to trigger pairing. Yeah, so I have a Sony Bluetooth speaker that does that. And it was really easy always to pair it up with, with the Android phones I had around, but yeah, never the iPhone. Bluetooth pairing is you know, pretty slow in general, and Kind of generally, hit and miss. Yeah, generally painful. Yeah. You know, that's Apple has their W1 chip that improves upon that. I don't know how it compares to doing the same thing with an NFC chip, but maybe it is an NFC, but I don't think so. I don't, because you don't have to be that close in proximity. Yeah, because NFC really is a pretty close proximity technology. Yeah. Arguably, that's one of the benefits of it. You know, if you're using it for payments, you don't have right. to be, you know, you can't scan it from across the room. Yeah, it's definitely more intimate than a QR code or some kind of bulletin board or note posted somewhere that you would maybe use computer vision to read. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see them do something with it and opening it up. Uh, it sounds like it still isn't necessarily viable for like third-party payment solutions and and some of the scenarios where you might see nfc as a as a preferred uh, method but yeah it's it's at least step in the right direction i don't think you know I, we always speculated that apple wouldn't open up the nfc because of the payment side of it so that, that does beg the question though what would stop some payment company from releasing an app that you could then pay through their app at an NFC terminal? I don't know if there is anything stopping them, but it's not a tap and you're good to go. It's uh, unlock your phone, find the app, right? start the session, tap your phone. Right, which... It's it's probably not more convenient than pulling out your wallet and popping your credit card into a, a card reader. Yeah, I will say that like Apple Pay is significantly faster for whatever reason, or you know, mobile payment in general, whether it's Android Android Pay or Apple Pay, than the chip readers today. And I don't know if that's because the chip on the card is 
is slow or, or what that is, but it essentially goes through a very similar process as the chip. Uh, but and Android Pay and Apple Pay are faster. By far. I read I read something about that when in the US they introduced the, the smart cards. And it has something to do with the implementation of the the way they did it in the US. Yes. It's, it's actually not really that, that much more secure than the magnetic stripe. It's for it's, our, it's our, got a few factors in it that are randomized. So yeah, it's a I, little bit better. It's not like it's not chip and pin. It's just chip though. Yes, you're right. Yeah, chip and pin is definitely better. Yeah. So uh, our, it, that's not required yet. Yeah, our European friends are like, you just use the chip. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're right. You're right. Without the pen, it's you know, it's chip really and signature is n not really that much better. Now, the card number essentially, you know, is not the same, and there's a few checks along the way, but and that's chip and Apple pen Pay. would be better. Yeah. With Apple Pay, you're using more of a virtual card. Yeah. Yeah, that's much more secure than using your real card number. But yeah, and and nicely with Apple Pay, you have some biometric data in there to do the authentication too. Yeah, that chip and pin, or the chip in the card is, I mean, that's basically the technology that some microsystems introduced with the Java card back in, like, early like, 2000s, maybe? Well, the Java ring was the kind of the precursor to that. And that was like 98, 97, 98. And there was an actual ring that ran Java. Back then it was actually kind of exciting. I think there were some places that were experimenting with using it for paying like with uh, at, uh, parking meters and things like that. It was, it was always intended as some kind of mobile payment solution. I'm trying to see if uh, I can find the date of when the Java card came out. Version 3 came out in 2008. Looks like version 2 was 1999. Somewhere around there. So it's been around for a long time. That's about as uh, quick as regular Java releases. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this was under like the Sun Microsystems day too, so that wasn't too bad. Yeah. With Oracle, it kind of, you know, they added a zero to the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It looks like the Java ring was 1998. <laughs> Exciting I, times. I, yeah. I mean, the magnetic strip was around for I don't know how long. So. Um, I mean. Well. We had the the transfers for a while, right. so the, the carbon copy, yeah, transfers, which we're really getting way off topic and <laughs> talking about how old we are. Well, I mean, you know, I I think mobile payments is definitely something that every retailer is going to be dealing with one way or another, and doing secure transactions in apps is definitely an important topic, but it's it's. The technology we're using isn't new, it's just more prevalent. Yeah. The, I mean, really, credit cards and that whole system goes, goes way, way back into the 60s. Or prior to that, if you talk about 
old towns where the people would run up tabs at the general store. Credit card was really meant as a replacement and standardization of that kind of principle. There's a podcast that was 99% Invisible where they talked about the history of the, the credit card in its early days. And it's a pretty fascinating podcast. If I can find it, I'll link to it in the show notes. Otherwise, uh, it's an exercise for the listener. So I think that kind of uh, exhausts our topics for the night. Uh, do you want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. And I'm at Sam Corder. And the awesome Alex Argo is at Alex Argo. You can go on Twitter and tell him how bad the episode was without him, or vice versa if you want to make us feel good. And you can find the podcast at Shared Inst, and we have a Slack that you can comment on it and actually even direct message Argo on there and tell him how awesome he is. And you can get an invite to that at chat.sharedinstance.com. And talk to you later. Later.